On the 30th of October, 1961, hell descended from the sky. That morning, a bomb eight meters long and two meters wide was mounted to the bottom of a modified Tupolev Tu-95 bomber, too large to fit in the bomb bay. Once ready for liftoff, the whitewashed Tupolev, together with a second observer plane, struggled up into the air and flew from Oliana Airfield to Novaya Zemlya, a chain of deserted islands in the Barents Sea. Nerves were frayed before the bomb was released. The pilot's chances of survival were estimated at approximately 50%. But nevertheless, as the morning aged toward noon, the bomb fell away from its plane. A delicate white parachute billowed out behind it. It would slow the bomb's fall and give the planes a better chance to escape. The seconds stretched out, both planes racing away from the test site. Then, for just a moment, the entire world was lost in a blinding flash, and a great nova rose up behind the aircraft. A fireball eight kilometers across consumed everything in its path. A mushroom cloud of colossal proportions rose 67 kilometers into the air. The bomber and its companion observer plane had managed to flee a couple dozen kilometers from the drop zone, but there was no outrunning the shockwave. It overtook both planes, shaking them like toys, and the pilots in the bomber lost control. The Tupolev dove for the deck, bleeding altitude as the crew struggled to wrest back authority over the aircraft. They managed to stabilize it after plummeting more than 300 meters. Terrifying, to be sure, but at least they had survived. Abandoned villages scattered across the region served as barometers for the bomb's destructive power. Even hundreds of kilometers away, wooden buildings were flattened, wiped away like matchstick houses, while some of the stone buildings managed to remain standing, though their roofs were invariably stripped away. The shockwave circled the earth no fewer than three times. The Tsar bomb, as it was known, was the largest nuclear weapon ever detonated. Its yield exceeded 50 megatons, greater than 50 million tons of TNT. It alone released more explosive power than every munition expended during World War II. For the Soviets, it was more than just a test of a new model armament. It was a statement to the world that they were the global leader in nuclear destruction. Though the United States had invented nuclear arms, the Soviets were their truest masters. Welcome to episode 12 of Frontier of Infinity, The Road of Trials. 
In the last episode, we flew alongside Gus Grissom as he became the second American in space aboard Liberty Bell 7 and experienced a harrowing landing when his capsule began to sink. Luckily, Gus was picked up before he drowned. But the Soviet's second space traveler, German Titov, did not fare much better than Grissom. Despite the fact that he pulled off a much more impressive mission, orbiting the world a full 17 times, he suffered from space sickness the entire time and then endured a very rough re-entry sequence. In response to Titov's flight, NASA scrapped the next planned Mercury-Redstone flight and opted instead to focus on getting the Atlas launch vehicle ready for a manned launch so that an American could finally achieve an orbit. In this episode, the Atlas goes through more trials, while Werner von Braun and Sergei Kurlyov compete to begin assembling moon missions. Following the successful launch of Alan Shepard, President John F. Kennedy delivered a famous address to both houses of Congress where he publicly professed that the United States should attempt to land a human on the moon by the end of the decade. The Congress were all for it, and authorized a massive expansion of NASA to meet the President's challenge. In the Soviet Union, Sergei Kurlyov also heard Kennedy's challenge, and he set right to work on a design for a rocket capable of flying a Soviet crew to the moon. But the competition between the various Soviet design bureaus posed a problem. Overall, there was more enthusiasm among the Soviet elites for research and development for military applications rather than spaceflight for purposes of science or prestige. This forced Kurlyov to sell his N-1 moon rocket as a universal launch vehicle, capable of military applications as well as scientific ones. But Kurlyov was not the only designer of rockets in the USSR. There were two other designers who formed Kurlyov's chief competition. The first was Mikhail Yangel, whom we met previously as the chief designer of the R-16 ICBM. The second was a socially savvy engineer named Vladimir Chelomey. Chelomey was a particularly formidable adversary as he was quite adept at networking with powerful figures in the Soviet government. He even had a personal tie to Premier Nikita Khrushchev, as he employed Khrushchev's son, Sergei. At the same time that Kurlyov was developing the N-1, Chelomey was working on his own large rocket, which was designated the UR-500. It was an intercontinental ballistic missile, but one that could also serve a dual role and be used for space projects like the N-1. The N-1, however, was met with resistance on two separate fronts. First, Kurlyov lacked the proper funding to develop the rocket quickly. And secondly, he lacked a set of proper engines that were capable of generating enough thrust. To realize his vision... Kurlyov would need more than 20 engines capable of putting out 150 tons of thrust in the first stage alone. The R-7, which had served as the Soviets' go-to launch vehicle, 
was powered by RD-107 engines designed by Valentin Glushko, who was by far the preeminent designer of rocket engines in the Soviet Union. Glushko and Kurlyov had proven that they were a veritable dream team with the R-7. But unfortunately, their personal relationship had fallen apart since the invention of the Semyorka. Regardless, Kurlyov knew just how valuable Glushko and the engines he designed were, so he endeavored to patch up his relationship with his old friend. Though, when he paid Glushko a visit, it didn't go exactly as planned. Kurlyov asked Glushko to design new engines for the N1 that used cryogenic fuels. Glushko thought this was a bad idea. He favored storable fuels that did not have to be kept at cryogenic temperatures. Kurlyov had long been opposed to the use of storable fuels. If you recall from a few episodes ago, the first ICBM designed to use storable fuels was Mikhail Yangel's R-16, which had exploded on the launch pad before its first flight, killing several score workers. Now, it's important to note that this explosion was caused mainly by the foolhardy actions of the man whose name would be forever associated with the disaster, Marshal Mistrofan Nadellin as he had ignored the advice of his engineers and ordered work on the rocket to be performed while it was fully fueled. But regardless, the wounds that the Nadellin disaster had inflicted were still fresh in Kurlyov's mind. He refused to use what he saw as unreasonably dangerous fuels in one of his designs. Glushko shot back by arguing that Kurlyov was stuck in the past. By that point, the military were using storable fuels, and Glushko saw them as the future of rocket technology. This only angered Kurlyov all the more, and the two men exploded on one another, eventually spurring Glushko to formally demand that the N-1 be redesigned for the use of storable fuels. Ultimately, it became quite evident that Glushko would not be designing the engines for the N-1. Come February of 1962, Khrushchev called a meeting of Defense Command at his dacha, where all three of the Soviet Union's main rocket designers would present their respective projects. Chalamet was there with his UR-500 design, and he delivered what must have been quite a compelling presentation, because the UR-500 was awarded approval for development. Part of this favorable decision, to be sure, was that the UR-500's engines would be designed by Valentin Glushko. When it came time for Kurlyov to show off his N-1, the lack of Glushko's engines certainly hurt its prospects. In lieu of Glushko, Kurlyov had arranged for a much less experienced engineer by the name of Nikolai Dmitrievich Kuznetsov to craft the engines. When pressed on this rather unexpected decision, Kurlyov stated that Glushko had refused to design for the N-1. Glushko was also in attendance of this presentation, and this quickly led to a fresh shouting match between the two engineers. Suffice to say, the presentation did not go well, and come the end, the N-1 was to be re-evaluated. Kurlyov's latest project had suffered a terrible blow, and on the personal front, 
This episode permanently damaged Glushko and Kurlyov's relationship, preventing them from ever working alongside one another again. While Kurlyov's project was suffering terrible setbacks, advancements were being made in the United States, which would lay the groundwork for the first American orbital flight. But before John Glenn could be shot into orbit, the Atlas launch vehicle had to be qualified to carry a human. The test launch designated Mercury Atlas III, launched back in April of 1961, had been a failure. About 40 seconds after launch, it deviated from its programmed flight path and was destroyed. But the escape rockets did fire as they were supposed to, and the capsule parachuted back down to Earth where it was recovered. But even despite this, it wasn't a promising flight. The Mercury Atlas would not fly again until the 13th of September, when Mercury Atlas IV was readied for launch in what was to be a repeat of the planned flight in April, though with an improved version of the Atlas rocket. On this test, the Mercury capsule was to be loaded atop the Atlas with no living organism on board. But in order to replicate the presence of a pilot, an ingenious machine known as a crewman simulator was to fly inside the capsule. This machine was designed to simulate the effects of a human on board, consuming oxygen, releasing carbon dioxide, generating humidity, etc. This launch would also serve as an acid test for NASA's newly operational network of tracking stations. If you recall, the lack of a global tracking network had added some extra drama to the launch of Explorer 1 back in 1958, as there was no way to tell if America's first satellite had achieved an orbit until it passed over the first domestic tracking station in California. This was not an option for a manned orbital flight. NASA would need to be able to track and stay in contact with their astronaut the whole way. This resulted in the construction of a tracking network that ringed the entire world, composed of 18 tracking stations with ships positioned in the Indian and Atlantic Oceans to fill in gaps in the coverage. Most, but not all, of these stations were manned, mostly by young personnel who carried with them everything they would need for the duration of the mission, like spare parts for their equipment as well as repair manuals, as many of these stations were quite remote, or even built in dangerous and unstable regions of the world. The whole network cost NASA $60 million, and they needed to make sure that it would work as intended before sending an astronaut into orbit. When the rocket touched off, it reached orbit and began its journey around the planet. Along the way, a number of minor problems cropped up. But in the vast majority of cases, redundant systems were able to compensate, and these minor problems did not become major problems. Communications were well within acceptable margins, and the tracking network was able to do its job beautifully. After completing one full orbit around the Earth, the capsule fired its retro rockets, dumped the retro pack, and splashed down into the ocean, where it was recovered by the USS Decatur. All in all, a successful test. The Atlas rocket had come a long way.
This successful test was followed by a failure, though not by the Atlas. Before the successful Atlas test, NASA had been interested in finding a cheap way to test the tracking network. They settled on the use of a very simple Air Force rocket called the Scout, which fired in four stages but burned all solid fuel. A very simple satellite with some communications gear was to be mounted at the top and fired into orbit so the network could try and track it. Originally, this flight was to take place before Mercury Atlas IV, but launch delays saw it pushed back into October, and even then it didn't manage to launch until the 1st of November. Certain voices in NASA, such as engineer Abe Silverstein, who was actually the one to name Project Apollo, argued that the test wasn't even necessary after the success of Mercury Atlas IV. But the rocket was acquired, the launch was scheduled, and there wasn't any harm in giving the tracking personnel some more practice. That practice never happened, though, as after launch, the scout started to slither back and forth in the air before it broke up. The gyroscopes for controlling pitch and yaw had been miswired. As such, corrections for the pitch were fed into the yaw controls and vice versa. Ultimately, it wasn't any kind of major setback. The tracking network had already been tested, but it did highlight the necessity of extreme attention to detail before a launch. Thus ended the brief history of the Mercury Scout. Just two days before the failed Mercury Scout launch, the Soviet Union detonated the Tsar Bomb, which spread renewed fear of nuclear annihilation around the world. Not long before, in a letter addressed to the American people and printed in Life magazine, President Kennedy urged Americans to dig fallout shelters and prepare for the worst. The world seemed as though it was marching inexorably nearer to nuclear Armageddon. It was against this backdrop of rising paranoia that NASA kept on with their tests. Following a successful orbital test, the next step was to do what had been done with the Redstone, launch a chimpanzee on a replica of the planned manned mission. The AstroChimp colony at Holloman Air Force Base once again provided the pilot, a primate named Enos. On the 28th of November, 1961, Enos was fired off. He was intended to make three full orbits, just as it was hoped that John Glenn would do the following year. Like on Mercury Atlas IV, the vehicle experienced some minor problems, but nothing too serious. Come the end of the first orbit, though, a more severe issue began to manifest. The capsule was making bizarre directional changes. Some of the tracking stations were reporting that the capsule was off course, while others found there to be no problem. It appeared that the capsule was deviating from its course before returning to it in a sort of pattern. These constant course corrections were consuming fuel at an alarming rate, which concerned flight director Chris Kraft that the capsule would not have enough fuel for a controlled re-entry by the end of the third orbit. A decision had to be made. Would they deorbit the capsule early, or push on with the complete test? Right at the end of the second orbit, 
Kraft decided to pull the plug on the mission rather than risk losing the capsule and Enos. A signal was transmitted to the spacecraft to begin the retro sequence, and Enos came hurtling back down to Earth. The USS Storms plucked the capsule out of the sea, and Enos emerged physically well, eagerly eating two oranges and two apples once on board the ship. The capsule was thoroughly examined, and the cause of the strange attitude deviations was determined. A metal chip had clogged the fuel line leading to one of the roll thrusters, which caused the spacecraft to drift off course. But once this deviation strayed far enough to trigger the automatic stabilization and control system, it would be corrected. It was good that the capsule wasn't allowed to drift further off course, but the fuel toll was quite steep. Each correction expended half a kilogram of fuel. There were problems, yes, but each of them were easily corrected. The successful flight of Enos, even though he had to be brought down early, nonetheless finished off the Mercury Atlas flight qualifications. It was officially approved to carry an astronaut. John Glenn would be able to ride one into orbit with the dawn of the new year. All the while, Werner von Braun was hard at work on America's moon project. Like Kurlyov, he was working on a rocket capable of propelling a payload to the moon. He had been working on his Saturn rocket for quite some time, but the Saturn I that he had been designing wouldn't even be sufficient to propel a landing craft to the moon. Von Braun realized that he would need a rocket capable of more than 10 million pounds of thrust. That's more than 44,000 kilonewtons. This led him to begin work on a new vehicle called the Saturn V. It would make use of the F-1 rocket engine, with five of them clustered together in the first stage. The F-1 was to be twice the size of any other rocket engine ever built. These five engines together could generate 7.5 million pounds of thrust, more than 33,000 kilonewtons, all on their own. But if even this behemoth proved insufficient, Von Braun had laid plans for a larger model called the Nova, which would feature eight F-1 engines. Though constructing the F-1 would prove a challenge. Given its size, combustion instability would be a real problem. If the fuel was not perfectly homogeneous and ignited properly, then pressure waves could generate inside the engine that could rip the vehicle apart. A rocket engine of this size had never been attempted before, so Von Braun was voyaging into unknown territory. He couldn't even be 100% certain that what he was attempting was feasible. The fuel was another issue. The F-1 was planned to use liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen, but the hydrogen fuel component posed a specific problem. It had to be kept exceptionally cold which not only required a lot of energy and storage equipment, but it also would freeze most materials on contact. Metal and other materials common in rockets would become brittle at just a touch. Tiny imperfections or weaknesses in a storage tank or other component could very quickly become failure points. Just designing a tank capable of containing this fuel was an issue but it was a challenge that was handed off to North American aviation. 
the Saturn V had a long way to go, but it was nevertheless faring better than Kurilov's N1. While work on the launch vehicle was underway, decisions were also being made regarding how the moon mission would be structured. Von Braun was a proponent for an Earth Orbit Rendezvous model, EOR. This plan required two spacecraft to be launched separately before executing an orbital rendezvous where the two vehicles would dock and then fly to the moon. The two joined segments would then descend to the lunar surface together and lift off again after surface activities concluded. This model would allow for a smaller launch vehicle, but an orbital rendezvous had never been attempted. Such a thing would require exceptional maneuvering capability and more than a little skill on the part of the pilot. Opposed to the Earth Orbit Rendezvous was the Lunar Orbit Rendezvous, LOR. This model was formulated by an engineer named John Hobalt from the Langley Research Center. Under this plan, one rocket would launch two vehicles. One of these would be a dedicated landing craft while the other would be a command module which would remain in orbit above the moon while the lander reached the surface. After the surface activities were complete, the lander would insert itself back into orbit, the two spacecraft would dock, and then the larger engine on the command module would push both vehicles back into Earth orbit where the crew capsule would re-enter the atmosphere. Hobalt argued that his plan was more efficient. An EOR mission, as it was proposed at that time, would see the entire vehicle land on the lunar surface. That meant that all of the equipment in Hobalt's command module, as well as the engine that would propel the spacecraft back to Earth, and all of the fuel for it, would be brought down onto the moon and then have to be lifted off. His separate vehicle method allowed for a much lighter and simpler lander to descend to the surface. Now, this idea was not entirely unique. Von Braun himself had proposed the use of dedicated landers which would descend from a mothership in his musings about a potential Mars landing, but he had not applied the idea to the moon. However, despite these arguments, NASA's top engineers were highly skeptical of the LOR scheme. For one, Hobalt offered weight estimates for lunar landers that were ludicrously low, 6,800 kilograms, about 15,000 pounds for a pressurized model, or 1,140 kilograms, 2,500 pounds, for an open-top model that was little more than a platform a single astronaut would stand on in a spacesuit. Additionally, the LOR plan was deemed overly dangerous as well, since a docking failure or other such catastrophe would be potentially survivable in Earth orbit, while one in lunar orbit would almost assuredly result in the loss of the crew. But even despite this near-unanimous condemnation of his idea, Hobalt maintained that his way was the right one. He went so far as to send a pair of letters to Associate Administrator of NASA, Bob Siemens. The first one went out in May of 1961, and then the second was fired off that following November. Now, accounts differ regarding just how much of an impact these letters had. But as 1961 drew to a close, the LOR idea began to be taken more seriously. 
Von Braun, along with Robert Gilruth, began to come around to the idea. Evidently, the seniors at the Manned Spacecraft Center, formerly the Space Task Group, had run the weight calculations and discovered that there really was a sizable advantage to Hobalt's plan. But the matter was not yet decided. The debate surrounding the mode decision, as it came to be known, would continue to rage on. Designing a lander also proved a challenge given the dearth of solid information that was available about the moon. No one knew exactly what conditions were like on the lunar surface. It could have been stony or sandy. Some thinkers were concerned that the lunar dust would be so fine that it would behave almost like a liquid. Go read Arthur C. Clarke's A Fall of Moon Dust for a fun take on that idea. Spacecraft designer Cadwell Johnson, thinking about the landing gear design, commented, quote, How in the hell are we going to design landing gear if the moon's seas are nothing but pools of dust and the mountains are nothing but blown glass fairy castles? End quote. Imagine a spidery landing craft descending to the lunar surface, slowly and gracefully drifting toward the ground, when, as soon as its landing gear touched the regolith, a great gaping maw opens up in the ground and swallows the crew and their lander whole. Now, nothing so dramatic as that was likely to happen, but the success of the mission, and thus the lives of the crew, could be endangered if they were not prepared to land on the proper sort of material. While NASA was making progress on their Atlas vehicle, the Moon program was tackling some very challenging obstacles, but at the very least, they were able to work on them, while Kurlyov's plans were stalled out in Russia. While all of this was happening, John Glenn was training for his and America's first orbital mission. The launch was scheduled for January 16th. That's where we'll leave off for now. Kurlyov is facing stiff resistance on his moon rocket project, while Fawn Brown and NASA are making steady progress. The Atlas rocket is ready to go, and John Glenn is preparing to fly into orbit. When we return, we'll ride alongside him. Thanks to all of you for listening. If you like this show and you want to help me out, please follow the podcast, share it with your friends and family, and give it a rating if you feel so inclined. It really does help. Our theme music is Crossing the Universe by Esther Garcia. You can listen to the full track and more of her music on Spotify. Until next time, I'm Tom. This is Frontier of Infinity. I'll see you among the stars. Thank you.